Welcome to How I Wrote This, a show about writers, their books, and the story behind their stories. I'm your host, Pamela Hensley, and in season two, I travel to Berlin. Learn what it's like growing up in a divided city, fleeing the country, living here as a Jewish expat. Join me as I speak to winners and contenders of the German Book Prize, the Thomas Mann Prize, the Dublin Literary Award, and the International Booker. Season two of How I Wrote This begins on April 23rd. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. For the Indian, daily life was a canvas, and each man was an artist. He decorated his moccasins, teepees, and costumes with intricate designs in brilliant colors that vigorously expressed his love of design. But the exclusive right to paint the legends and lore was jealously guarded by the powerful medicine men. The legends were the last of the great secrets, and to release them beyond the bounds of the tribe was unthinkable. So what are we listening to? This is a film produced by the National Film Board of Canada. It's called The Color of Pride. Norval Morisot, an Ojibwe from Northern Ontario, questioned the wisdom of this taboo. In keeping the story secret, was there not also the danger of losing them? Perhaps their preservation depended not on the secrecy, but on a new way of seeing and understanding the legendary past. Here, read the film's description. Uh, okay. An introduction to four Indigenous painters whose work in recent years has stirred interest in Canada and abroad. Despite the artists' differing styles and origins, their canvases reflect their common heritage. This short documentary was released in 1973 and features interviews with Norval, as well as Daphne Ojig, Alex Jambier, and another artist, Alan Sapp. So three artists that we know will form the Professional Native Indian Artists Incorporated. That's right. All in one film. And it was not the first NFB film to feature Norval. He had appeared in The Indian Speaks a few years earlier, but this one is unique because it features nearly half the PNIAI around the time they were beginning to work and exhibit together. I also asked Alex specifically about what it was like during the filming of Colors of Pride. This is Carmen Robertson. So I said to him, well, so what went on? So were you talking about this as a group? How did you find out? He said that he didn't even know the names of any other artists that were involved in the project. They came out to Sherwood Park uh, in Alberta and filmed him, and that was that. And he knew nothing else about it. So they didn't know that they were being interviewed at the same time? Nope, not at all. Do you want to hear the last thoughts from the film? Sure. Four painters from four provinces, separated by miles in distance and style. Each paints independently of the other, and each is a distinctly individual artist. Yet they are linked by a common source, their Indian heritage. And together, they form a new and unique expression. It 
seems just so odd to me that there was so much missed there in an opportunity to really engage in how these artists at that time were already trying to help new generations, were organizing themselves to uh, change the gallery system for them. And none of that is covered in Colors of Pride. So a film crew set out to capture what was recognized as a moment of emergence for First Nations artists in Canada. But they failed to identify the other story happening under their noses. So what was that story? Well, we're going to cover it today, but first... I'm Soleil Lunière. And I'm Ryan Barnett. And this is Among Equals, the history and legacy of the professional Native Indian artist, Inc. In our last episode, we met Joseph Sanchez and Eddie Cobinis. Daphne reconnected with her Indigenous identity and she opened Ojig Prince of Canada so she could sell her artwork as well as the works of her contemporaries. This is part four in our story, Breaking Glass. Daphne established her place somewhat in the mold of what Andy Warhol had done with the factory in New York City. It was a meeting place to create work, experiment, share ideas. A place like Daphne's shop and uh, the making of prints and stuff like that, uh, the artwork then started to circulate more and people got to see it differently and they got to relate to us as artists and they would come into Daphne's shop and they'd look at this work and they too realized this all the creativity that's that's there and it's also a creativity that they're not familiar with you know because basically uh, the art of the world is western European and uh, having to come to grips with uh, looking at a normal morsel that's so powerful that you can't take your eyes off of it He's talking about something that you 
you can only understand in your heart. Or, or Daphne's, uh, like those big pieces, the big, uh, from Mother Earth flows the water of life, draws you into something. These are our thoughts, feelings, uh, representations of, of, uh, of an indigenous life that was here long before the colonizer arrived and it was suppressed. And even, uh, you know, the goal was to assimilate that information and ass- turn the Indians into a, an assimilated personality where their goals and their desires would be the desires of the dominant culture. You saw individuals, um, artists who were pitted between or against government programs and government-supported institutions and non-Native public expectations of what Indigenous art should be, what an Indigenous person should be and does act like and how it should, how we should be represented. This is Michelle Lavallée. And so these institutions and, and, and public expectations were really wanting art that reflected a stereotype of, of Indianness. What began to form in that back room at Daphne's shop was the idea of creating a new art language and educating collectors and creating what Joseph would call a less greed-motivated mentality by curators and directors and gallery owners to allow an authentic indigenous view of our cultural heritage emerge and get past this uh, romantic fantasy of Native people, which in truth is... Uh, a documentation of our genocide. But to do so, these artists couldn't operate siloed from one another, the way they would be portrayed in the colors of Pride. They would have to come together. For years, they had crossed paths, had pieces appear in the same shows, or were commissioned to create work for a common exhibition, as was the case with Expo 67. But in 1972... Non-Indigenous curator, um, there, there really wasn't Indigenous curators at the time, but Jackson Fry uh, featured uh, Jackson Beardy, Alex Jambier, and Daphne Ojig in a three-person exhibition at the Winnipeg Art Gallery. The exhibition was called Treaty Numbers 23-287-1137, named for the respective treaty numbers of the artists. And it was the first exclusively contemporary First Nations exhibition to be held in a public gallery in Canada. This is what Fry wrote in the catalogue for the exhibition. New artistic movements, even when they concern our own culture, require an open, fresh emotional and intellectual approach. When new work comes from a culture other than our own, an even more demanding situation arises. The works of other cultures make us ask questions about our own values and ideas. Instead of looking for what we expect to find, we need to relax, examine things carefully, and then find what is really there. Ah, uh, yes, a bit of uh, cultural humility. Yeah, that's the first exhibition that really, truly broke the glass ceiling of Canadian art to have, and uh, that uh, curator Jacqueline Fry uh, was really uh, ahead of her time by doing that. This is Joseph again. And the idea that uh, using those treaty numbers uh, was that 
That was the disrespect that the colonizer had for the people. You're just a number. You don't have a name. You're not a person. You're a number. You're number 23, and your children are going to be in a 24, 25, and 26. So if you used uh, uh, the person's name in their own language, uh, that was not going to help the assimilation of these people. Greg Hill expands on this idea. Pointing out how there's this different kind of uh, identity and system uh, for Indians in Canada uh, at that time and yeah, making people aware of this paternalistic system, but also at, at such an important time of, of the three of them having uh, this exhibition at a public art gallery. I think it really signals communicating critical ideas through contemporary art. And I think Treaty Numbers, because it was at the Winnipeg Art Gallery, it really lent institutional credibility to their practice and gave a boost to their profile, which which then later, or, or soon after, was reinforced. In his review of the show, John Graham, art critic for the Winnipeg Free Press, wrote, Read this. Out of the fun of legends, traditional forms, patterns, and colors, these three artists have developed separate aesthetic frameworks and constructed their own configurations upon them. Inextricably part of a multi-layered and multicultural society, such creative statements give promise of greater appreciation of the contribution to be made by this part of the whole mosaic. But even before their show at the WAG... Uh, well, in those early days, it was uh, uh, Jackson and uh, Daphne who had started to talk. And uh, this idea was uh, began by them. And, and through the shop, you know, this idea was circulated in, in the conversations as uh, artists came in and we'd sit there in the back room and drink coffee and talk about, well, uh, there's a show in Toronto, but no, and there's no natives or there's, you know, uh, this artist is getting, you know, $20,000 for a painting, but I'm only getting, you know, $20. Why is that? It's basic uh, discrimination. A vision began to develop. And so those conversations, you know, became stronger and stronger. I don't know if it was uh, Daphne whose idea was to form a group of, or, or Jackson, but together, you know. Norville was always on board with, with Daphne. He had a lot of respect for Daphne. And, and Carl was with him as well. You know, they were longtime friends. Then came in uh, uh, Alex Janvier. Daphne would soon invite Eddie and Joseph to join their burgeoning group. Loomis definitely is one of the first self-organized art activist groups in, in our history. You know, one of the beautiful things is how each artist was encouraged to follow, you know, his or her own path. And, and the more senior members like uh, Norval, Daphne and Eddie and, and Alex, who, who really their careers began or they, they you know, began producing work in the, in the 50s and 60s, also complemented and, and mentored the younger members of the group. There is a handful of Indigenous artists that works were being had made a little bit creeped in the mainstream, like Norvell Morrisville, for example, was one. This is Donna Feledichuk. So I'm Dr. Donna Feledichuk. I'm the uh, director of Portage College's Museum of Aboriginal Arts and Artifact in La Clavish, Alberta. Today, the Museum of Aboriginal Arts and Artifact is the only museum in the world to host a permanent exhibition featuring this group of artists. Benjamin Chichi was starting some prominence at the time. Alex Janvier had had a bit of success. Daphne had had a little bit of success. But they were pockets, and it wasn't the norm, it was the exception. 
And frequently when uh, numerous artists at the time, not just the group, but other artists that were working at the time were, were taking works to galleries, they were getting rejected. The group really was a resistance to uh, the establishment and really advocated for that we're an important group of artists in Canada. They fought against exclusionary practices that, that was treating their work, that was treating the work of, of all Native artists as, as craft. So I think gathering together in, in Daphne's space really helped them. And one of the main goals was, was to fight to establish a forum and, and these spaces for the voices and perspectives of, of Indigenous artists. They formed a group because they realized they could do more as a group, uh, you know, more power in numbers. Norval, I mean, had already had his solo exhibitions and Alex, you know, would have been uh, trying to get exhibitions and, uh, and grants and was being refused. I think that they, they realized they had common goals and, and that to achieve them, they, they would be more powerful as a group. But what would they call this alliance? That, that was probably the hardest thing we had to do, was to create that name. Norval, Alex, Daphne, Jackson, Carl, Eddie and Joseph put their heads together. They called themselves the Professional Native Indian Artists, Inc. And it was inadequate at best. But we had to make a statement. Uh, the word professional and Native Indian and artists were, were things that we were not considered. Soon after, Jackson Beardy filed the paperwork to incorporate the PNIAI. A name like that was important in, in the uh, corporate sense, in the incorporation papers. When we were applying for grants, that was, are you professionals? Where's your degrees? Which of you have a degree? I think Alex is the only one that has a degree in the group. They sought a grant to achieve the goals of their Association of Professional First Nations Artists. They wanted to develop a fund that would enable artists the freedom to paint. They wanted to develop marketing strategies with commercial galleries, hopefully leading to greater opportunities for the artists. They wanted to travel to communities and connect with young artists, and they wanted to develop a trust fund, using a portion from sales of their artworks to assist emerging artists. I worked up north in northern Manitoba. I was working in Oxford House, uh, which uh, is still a nursing station. This is Pauline Beardy. She is Jackson Beardy's widow. And what would happen is the all the aircraft would come in uh, to the dock by the nursing station. In those days, there was no runways. This little boy comes running up to me and said, Oh, nurse, nurse, there's a real Indian coming up the pathway. But it was Jackson, and he was... Uh, He was wearing a beaded uh, cowboy hat, and he had the long hair and the braids. He had um, a moose hide jacket that was beaded, um, and beaded belt, and cowboy boots. That's how I met him. Pauline remembers being there for those early days of the group. Jackson was involved in the legalization of the group. 
so he was involved with the lawyers uh, and then as a group they set up art shows across the country he was instrumental in helping set up shows going out talking to gallery owners you know phoning gallery owners that kind of thing little by little things became offered to us one of the first exhibitions offered to the group was at the war museum in ottawa which uh is one of my most memorable moments Daphne had received a letter from the Canada Council for the Arts offering the newly formed PNIAI their first show. <laughs> Norville was sitting in the corner and he just stood up and said, just no way we're doing the War Museum. To Morisseau, this was just another way of marginalizing them as artists. It was just what the establishment had been doing all this time, treating their work as second class or worse. We should be in the National Gallery, not the War Museum, he said. He didn't speak often, Norval, but when he did, he really was uh, was very animate about his point of view, and he was a guiding light in that way. And uh, from that moment, uh, the conversation came, what is it that we need to do then? And it was Alex who suggested that we go to Dominion Gallery. But the road to Montreal's Dominion Gallery was not a straight one. Despite the presence of Norval, Alex, Daphne and Eddie as members of the new collective, they had to build momentum to achieve this lofty goal. Following the success of the 3D Numbers exhibition a year earlier, the group of seven artists would show their work together for the first time on the eighth floor of the Eden's department store. It was an inauspicious start of this new endeavor. Though as part of this exhibition, Eddie would present one of his pieces to Steve Juba, the mayor of Winnipeg. Because, you know, when seeking free promotion for a show, it never hurts to be pictured with the mayor. Indeed. Here, read this article from the Winnipeg Tribune. It's entitled, Neglect of Indian Art Spurs Group. Um, they're artists, there are seven of them, but their names bear no resemblance to A.Y. Jackson, Lauren Harris, or Frank Johnson. A reference to the famed group of Canadian landscape painters who operated during the 1920s and 30s. The spicy side of me wants to point out that this article misspells Daphne, Norville, and Eddie's names, and for some reason spells Jackson Beardy the one name that does resemble A.Y. Jackson with an X. <laughs> Good. Good work, right? Yeah, okay. So this article is important for two reasons. First, it may just be the origin of the PNIAI's nickname, the Indian Group of Seven. You know, the the way that the moniker the Indian Group of Seven comes about, how, how I recall, uh, it was really kind of a joke. Because, uh, of course, the Group of Seven is, you know, this... Uh, mythologically fantastic group of Canadian artists that are the epitome of Canadian identity uh, still and the audacity of seven Indian artists in the, the early 70s coming forth and there happened to be seven of them and a way of ridiculing them would be to call them the Indian group of seven it's like who do you think you are <laughs> you know it was uh, kind of a not useful for recruiting other artists. I think they were really not really thinking that way. Uh, in the uh, in the Western European art world, I would say that this was uh, 
something like a joke to them. And it's, it's true that that's the, the name that really stuck with us. I remember as a young curator, <laughs> you know, 20-some years ago, people saying to me, oh, yeah, but he's a member of the Indian Group of Seven. And I was like, oh, my God, can't we get past this? So that so it's kind of an uncomfortable moniker, but it's a lot easier to say than the professional, uh, professional Indian Native Artists Incorporated. The second reason this article is important is that in it, Daphne, Joseph, and Eddie talk about the group's reason for forming, the need for outreach to young people in rural or remote communities, their plan to devote a portion of their earnings to a trust fund, and finally, as Joseph is quoted at the end of the article, just seeing some of our works would be an incentive in itself for any developing artist. There is a lot of talent being wasted because of lack of exposure and encouragement. The first major exhibition in which all seven members would have work on display was called Canadian Indian Art 74, curated by Seneca curator and artist Tom Hill at the Royal Ontario Museum. Not a gallery. No, unfortunately. In those days, we had a show at the uh, uh, ROM in Toronto. In that show, you walked down into the basement, past all the dinosaur bones to get to our exhibition. And that really uh, solidified this whole idea that we're nothing more than artifacts. And this was, uh, for a political point of view, this is something that we had to change. We no longer could be always the guys that are showing the glass cases, you know, in, in the basements of museums with dusty bones or the bones of our own ancestors, which is just a travesty in itself. The show was subtitled, An Exhibition of Contemporary Art and Traditional Crafts. So the old tropes of indigenous art as artifact persisted, but this recognition of contemporary indigenous art as a thing was a step forward if only a few degrees from lateral. In fact, two years earlier, the ROM had purchased 11 works by Morisot, the museum's first purchase of any fine art for its collection. Wow. Of course, the purchase of this work was spearheaded by Dr. Edward Rogers, curator of ethnology for the museum. Uh, gotcha. But 1974 brought two other important developments. Daphne expanded her operation to include the new warehouse gallery. Of course, it was a space to show and sell works by members of the group, but also the work of other indigenous artists, including Alvin Redman and Wilma Simon. The grand opening offered Daphne and the other artists the opportunity to talk about their mission statement as a group. The second development was the release of a new NFB documentary, once again, featuring Norval Morisot. The lady came up to see me, the, our medicine lady. She came up and see me and gave me the name, Copper Thunderbird, Ozawa Kobnesi. And that's how I got my Indian name. Many names, many personalities, many signatures, each wrestling for the identity of this complex man. The paradox of Norval Morisot is a heavy film. This is Carmen Robertson. There are some really good things about it. At times, Morisot gets to speak freely. 
The 28-minute profile of Morisot, which utilizes footage capture for earlier NFB productions, like The Indian Speaks and The Color of Pride, also features original interviews with Norval and Jack Pollock. In his review of the film for Art Crafts magazine, Tom Hill wrote, The film interview itself is superlative, when Morisot nonchalantly discusses the critics' comments about his position in the Canadian art scene and his primitive X-ray technique of drawing. The interview also externalizes for the audience the introspective personality of this multidimensional artist. Even though we've got Duke Redbird, uh, his lyrics, and Shingu singing this amazing song, Norval, Norval, what's driving you throughout, and speaking to the realities that Morisot was dealing with, you know, they're throwing your body around uh, and all of this uh, really important stuff. What we have at the same time is this... Um, male narrator speaking over all of these um, truths, I guess you could say in some way, and um, changing that dialogue to one that fits within an assimilationist way of thinking. But while Morisot presents us with images of the insides of the creatures he paints, it's much less easy for us to see into him, to penetrate his paradoxical exterior. And that's really what was being promoted in Canada, was to assimilate Indigenous people in the 1970s. One of the troubling aspects of this doc is that Norval appears to be under the influence of alcohol throughout parts of the film. Carmen Robertson notes in her book about Norval and the media that it appears he was drunk only in one interview, But as it's edited into the film, it reads us much more. The lazy drunk Indian narrative. Norval Moriso isn't your Indian name, is it? What is your Indian name? Jean Baptiste. This is Cory Dingle talking about how Moriso is seen in Europe versus at home in Canada. When I speak to my counterparts in Germany and we're going to do a show, or France or Italy, I don't have to deal with the drunk Indian narrative. I I get grand shaman, mystical individual who has a deep understanding of human nature, and they see him almost as like, as I mentioned, as somebody who travels between two periods of, of this earth's time and brings forth ancient knowledge. And so individuals from other country see him in this mystical grand shaman form not the drunk indian selling bottle you know selling paintings for bottles never hear that it was a narrative that followed morisot through the 1970s and really for the rest of his life we have our archive of of all the articles and and it's absolutely fascinating but yet it still goes on But every single article about Morisot mentions that he's a drunk. And the NFB in that way was a really important tool because it was teaching Canadians about Indigenous artists and Indigenous art who had no real way of understanding or knowing about this art otherwise. So they become incredibly important and influential um, uh, 
documents, but teaching materials as well. And so it's so hard to undo this. And I can't tell you how many times with Morriso in the press in Canada, in other documentaries, the concept of the paradox of Morriso comes up again and again because it's so difficult to undo that. His obituaries across Canada and the world when he uh, passed in 2007 often mention paradox within them. So incredibly influential. So, you'll remember from earlier in the episode, the group's goal was to have a show at the Dominion Gallery in Montreal. Founded by Rose Macmillan in 1941, the Dominion Gallery was purchased by Max Stern in 1947. Under Stern's direction, the gallery became the preeminent gallery in Canada that promoted works by living Canadian artists, including Paul-Émile Bordua, Emily Carr, and E.J. Hughes. The Dominion Gallery also had the largest collection of international sculptures in Canada, including works by Henry Moore and Auguste Rodin. That's nice. In terms of infiltrating the fine arts establishment, the Dominion Gallery was it. Here's Joseph. And if he got a show at a major Canadian gallery who brought work from all over the world, and if he accepted our work, that would open other doors to, to gallery representation or even considering this for exhibition. And uh, we sent this guy from the Secretary of State uh, and he went and met with Max Stern. Eventually, Stern rolled back, but the news wasn't great. In his letter, he stated that the gallery would like to have works by Daphne, Alex, and Norval, but was not interested in the rest of the group. But it would take works by Alan Sapp as well. And I said, well, Alan Sapp's not a member. No doubt, Max Stern spotted the advantage of having all four artists from the Colors of Pride in one gallery show. The reason we formed this group was that it was all or nothing. You take us all, and that's the reason we're making a presentation this way, that we're a group of, of artists, we're representing all our people. And in that way, he finally agreed. Uh, he sent me a note saying that he didn't show works on paper, but I didn't have any canvases. Uh, so he did accept my works on paper, and also I think works by Norval. Everybody worked on paper in those days. You know, very few of us had canvases, and we did have a, a, a successful show there. They were also looking to fight against imposed definitions and imposed processes and, and marketing of their work. So they wanted to control, they wanted, you know, they sought to control their own creative processes. And, and they didn't want others to determine the validity of, of their connection to their own heritage. You know, they were they were interested in, you know, it was a big question at the time, you know, what, what is, um, you know, Native art, but they defined it for themselves. 1975, Dominion Gallery have the commercial exhibition. This is Philip Gevick. I'm Philip Gevick. My expertise is 
Philip has been the owner and operator of Toronto's Gallery Gevik for nearly 50 years and has represented the works of several members of the PNIAI. It was a big time that was open up you know, the world for them because all the other commercial galleries It's a little hard to hear, but Philip cites the show at the Dominion Gallery as the exhibition that made all the other galleries turn their attention to the PNIAI. But Alex Janvier was saying that uh, to me once that he was frustrated by the exhibition, uh, the Max Stern exhibition at the Dominion Gallery in. Montreal because really they were not being paid at a level that was commensurate with what mainstream artists were being paid. And that's clear if you look at archival documents. And when you see the amounts in their in their um, stock books that works are being sold for in comparison to what mainstream artists were being um, marketed at. You understand why Morisot was continuing to push that idea and while the, why the PNIAI was frustrated by that uh, reality. I didn't get to go to uh, Montreal. I had no money to travel, so... I think only Jackson went. The gallery didn't pay them to travel to their own show? Well, Joseph explains. Support wasn't like that at the time. You know, uh, and it wasn't uh, until the uh, we did the next show, which was at Wallach Gallery in Ottawa. And uh, Daphne at that time was uh, had received uh, this... Uh, 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 residency in, in Sweden... And so she was away painting in, in Europe. And Norval, I forget where he was. He might have been in Europe as well. So it was just the, uh, the five boys were left to represent. Joseph doesn't remember who covered the bill, but he remembers arriving at the Wallach Gallery in a limo, along with Eddie, Carl, Jackson, and Alex. It was really a, a scene. You know, we're all dressed in, to the nines. There were so many people, something like I'd never seen before. You know, uh, and they brought us in like a, a limo or whatever, and we were, all got out, and people are clapping, and... You know, girls are hugging us and, you know, we were, you know, as a, like a 24-year-old man, you know, I, I thought I'd arrived. That was really a rock star moment for me, where I was just like a, everybody was, wow, wow, you know. Pauline Beardy shares another memory from the Wallach show. The moment when she and Jackson overheard a conversation between two women at the show. And these two old ladies said that Native people were such heathens. And we had to have a good laugh about that because they didn't realize, you know, that they'd been overheard. They put themselves out there and they they took everything that came with that, with, the, you know, with folks not accepting the work and the comments that came with that. And they still soldiered through, right, and um, got it to where it was accepted. And uh, the show was uh, very successful. There were 
I guess the largest show that they've ever had in that gallery, Wallach Gallery. We'd finally really done that. We've made that champagne reception, but we'd broken a, a, a barrier. So they had their champagne toasts and the recognition of major galleries in Canada. And attention from Europe would soon follow. And while interest in the group and their work was growing, so too was their media presence. They would work to change the representations of First Nations in the public and industry discourse. And they continued to explore and represent their histories, relationships with the land, and to colonization through their work. On the next episode of Among Equals... So they began to be spoken about as artists and as and and they had there was an element of cool you know what they were doing was cool Among Equals is a special presentation of Knockabout Media and has been made possible by the government of Canada It's hosted by me, Soleil Lounière, and produced by Ryan Barnett, Maya Foster-Sanchez, and Naka Bertrand. Our series advisors are Joseph M. Sanchez and Donna Filadichuk. This series features interviews with Bonnie Devine, Greg A. Hill, Michelle Lavallee, Carmen Robertson, Pauline Beardy, Philip Gavick, Corey Dingle, Donna Filadichuk, and Joseph M. Sanchez. Special thanks to Eric Berendt at the Indigenous Arts Center. Our series artwork is by Caleb Ellison Dysart, with additional work by Carlene Harvey. For a list of sources used in this series and to download the listening guide, visit knockaboutmedia.com. Knockabout Media Original. Hold on. 